Good morning, church, and welcome to ECCC, especially if you're visiting with us today. We're glad that you're here. Maybe you're watching online. We thank you for tuning in today. Children are dismissed for Children's Church. You can go ahead and follow Lauren on down the hall for a lesson that will uh, be a little more uh, on your level. The rest of us, we're going to dive right in. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I sound like Smokey and a Bandit, don't I? Not that I've ever seen that show, um, but good stuff. That's a classic. Anyway, Romans chapter 4 today. Uh, we are going to be dealing with uh, the issue of faith and simple faith, and I, I, I do have a lot to cover, so I'm not going to uh, have a big introduction. We're going to dive right in. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 says, What then shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? And here's the first of, of many times in this passage of Scripture that the word faith, the word trust, the word believe is used, and those are all interchangeable in the Greek here. So, uh, it, it, obviously, Paul's trying to get something across here. Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him, credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So Paul is writing to the church at Rome and he mentions two examples of faith from the Old Testament. So that's what I want to do today. I want to talk about a couple of examples of faith from the Old Testament. I want to talk about a few enemies of faith and then we're going to talk about the essence of what faith is. And so the first example that Paul gives is Abraham. And what we need to know about Abraham in this passage of Scripture, and I just got to tell you, if God were calling me during that day and age, I'm not so sure I could have done what Abraham did. Abraham followed God without having all of the details. Now, I am not, if you know me very well at all, you know I am not a detailed-oriented person. Amen? Where's Kendall on that? Yeah, okay, I thought there might be a couple of you on that, okay? So, um, but in this situation, if God is calling me to do what he called Abraham to do, I probably would have been like, yeah, I don't have enough to go on here. This is going to be really tough. And much of this chapter is about Abraham, and Abraham followed God's plan without knowing all the details, Right? To follow God when you don't know all of the details, that requires faith. And the amazing thing about Abraham is he came along uh, and he followed God long before the law of God was ever given to the Jews. One of the questions that's asked sometimes by people, who came first, Moses or Abraham? And I'll be honest, we have a lot of biblically illiterate Christians that don't know the answer to that question. I was going to use our technology and have you open up your phones and take a little quiz and and put that on the screen, but I decided not to do that because I, you know, I, I don't know. You know, some of you might not really know, and I didn't want to embarrass you. Uh, but uh, who came first, Moses or Abraham? Some don't know that. Moses came first, in case you did not know. Uh, or Abraham came first, I'm sorry. <laughs> Woo! 
I don't have time for mess-ups like that today. i got a lot to cover. Abraham came first, centuries before Moses. It took a while for some of you, though, to figure out that I just messed up. I'm going to be honest. God gave the law through Moses, but old Abraham came a long time before the law ever got there. He came long before the law of God. God just called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the Bible says, which is near modern-day Saudi Arabia and over in that area, Iraq and, and that area. Abraham... Uh, was told by God, there is only one God. That's it. And he's saying, stop worshiping all of these pagan gods that your family has worshipped for years. Trust me, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know anything about. And it took great faith for Abraham to say, okay, I'll do this. Right? Yes, sir, I'm going to do it. And he moved and he started moving toward this land that he didn't know anything about. He didn't know uh, how far it was. He didn't know what the conditions were like. Nothing. He didn't even know God's name. And yet he followed. When someone directs us to do something, before we take the first step, I think most of us want to know, hey, what, what are the details here? You know, If Abraham would have been like most of us are, and God would have spoken to us, we would have said, I, I need to know who you are, God. At least tell me what your name is. At least tell me everything that's in it for me. Abraham didn't ask that question. You know? We would have. And then later on, we see that Abraham, throughout his life, he just keeps moving by faith. Whatever God asks him to do, he does it. We read it time and time again in the Old Testament where Abraham just trusted God. One time, uh, Abraham conquered some lands and he had to appropriate some of the wealth, the Bible tells us. And God said to Abraham, I want you to give one-tenth of the wealth to this priest named Melchizedek. He's the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And Abraham didn't say, what? God, you want me to give 10% to the priest? You want me to do that? Someone that I've never met before? Someone that I don't know all that? Well, I don't know what he's going to do with that. You think I'm crazy or something? Why would I give a tenth of my possessions to a guy I've never met before? But Abraham didn't do that. He just trusted God. He didn't say, God, who are you? He didn't say, God, where am I going? He didn't say, God, why do you want me to give away a tenth of my possessions? And it took an amazing amount of trust and faith for Abraham to do what God called him to do, especially without knowing some of those details. There was one final part to this promise that God gave to Abraham. God, in fact, at the time his name was Abram, right? And he said, I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, and your new name means father of many people. And so Abraham spent most of his life running around being called father of many people, when in fact he was the father of none. You think people laughed about that? You ever laugh at someone's name? It's kind of like, oh, that name just don't fit them. That's just kind of a weird name or whatever. I can imagine people in the land where Abraham was, they probably laughed at him, father of many people. That's hilarious, right? We know Abraham was 99 years old before God ever came through with that promise. You talk about amazing faith. You talk about amazing trust. One of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible is Abraham following God without knowing what laid in store. Now, as we continue to look in verse 3 here of, uh, of this passage of Scripture, it says that Abraham believed God, and because he believed God, God said, all right, Abraham, I'm going to give you a credit line of righteousness. 
You notice in verse 4, it doesn't say that Abraham earned this credit line of righteousness. It was given to him as a gift. And Paul uses the analogy here of the wages that we get paid when we do a job. How many of you, uh, when you get your paycheck at the end of each pay period, do you go back to your boss and you say, oh, thank you so much for this wonderful gift. Thank you for giving me this gift every, every two weeks. I just appreciate it so much. How many of you do that? No, because we feel like we earn it, right? Our boss is not giving us a paycheck as a gift. We feel like we have earned that. When you work for your wages, you say, hey, I've got that coming to me. I earned that. Abraham never one time thought, God, you owe me something. God, I have earned this. God, because I believe you, you have given me this. You owe me this righteousness. Not one time do we ever see Abraham doing that. Now, we might feel that way if we would have left everything and if we would have followed God without knowing all of the details, we might feel like, hey, God, I kind of earned some of your blessings. We might feel that way today in some of the things that we face in our lives where we trust God. I hope you understand when God looks at you and He says, your sins are forgiven. You are righteous. I hope you never entertain the thought that, well, God, you owe that to me. It's a gift. There's not a single thing you can do to earn it. And Abraham is the first example of that. Now there's another example here, um, and that is a guy by the name of David. David believed God even when he didn't feel like it. David accepted God's grace. He trusted God. He believed God even when he didn't feel like it. And I don't know if this sounds familiar to you or not, but there are some days in my life when I just don't feel like exercising the trust that I know that God wants me to have. Has anybody ever been there? Right? I know this happens to us. Here's the leader of the strongest nation on the planet at that particular time. He claims to have a relationship with God. One day, this leader of the greatest nation in the land at that time, he commits sexual indiscretion with a young woman who's not his wife, and then worse to committing this act, he denied that it ever happened, and then he tried to cover it up, and for months and months and months he did cover it up, and a lot of people suspected that he was probably guilty, but he kept covering it up. He just kept covering it up. He kept denying it. And we know that this is a guy by the name of David, and he was called a man after God's own heart. Again, he's the leader of the greatest nation known to man in that particular time, and yet he broke three of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Abraham came before the law, David came after the law, and he broke three of the ten. Right? He only got seven of the ten, right? That's a C minus. That's not very good for a guy who is called a man after God's own heart. First commandment he broke, he coveted his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. And then he broke commandment, uh, uh, the second commandment, he committed adultery with her. And then the third commandment that he broke, he had her husband murdered. Now, Paul chooses to include David in this passage of Scripture, and he chooses to include Abraham as well. Uh, and, and I think he does this because he wants to show us that 
Abraham before the law. He's trying to show us before the law was ever given, there's only one way to know God. Right? And then he shows us after the law, through David, there's only one way to know God. And that is through our faith in Him. It has nothing to do with what we do. It has nothing to do with keeping all of the rules and all the regulations and being religious. It has everything to do with accepting God who, for who He is by faith. And in, Psalm, in, in this passage of Scripture in Romans, Day, or Paul is quoting David in Psalm 32, and, and he only quotes the first two verses, so I want us to, to, to look at all of those. But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of background. David prayed this prayer because he had been convicted of the sin that I mentioned just a moment ago with Bathsheba. He'd co- coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. He committed murder. You know? And you think, man, that guy was messed up. And he was the greatest leader of, of the world, most powerful nation. And finally, as David is dealing with this sin in his life, God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan and said, David, you're guilty of, of sin in your life. And so David finally begins to confess his sin and admit his wrongdoing. And, and we already read just a moment ago those first two verses. But, but look at Beginning in verse 3, David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, O God, was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Now how many of you, when you were little, you did something wrong and you just hoped that your mom didn't find out about it? Or your dad? Anybody ever do that? That was me once or twice. And, and so, uh, there have been a couple times in my life where I've done something really, really stupid. And I hope that mom or dad didn't find out. And while I'm waiting for them, hoping that they don't find out, I'm thinking the whole time, I'm, I'm in agony. You know, if they find out, they're going to absolutely kill me. Right? I'm thinking that. And, and this is kind of the picture I get, only this is with the God of the universe. David is carrying this weight of this indiscretion in his life, and, and he says that his strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Can you relate to that? But then I acknowledged my sin to you. This is what David says. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my guilt And my sin, you forgave the guilt of my sin is what it says. Skip down to verse 10. Now, many are the woes of the wicked, David said, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts him. Okay, so David goes for months. He's covering up his sin. He's covering up his sin. And the Bible says he's in agony. He's absolutely miserable because he's hiding this thing from people that he hopes that nobody ever finds out. And he's walking around and he's drained and he's just expending all of this energy as on a hot summer day. And he said, my bones were hurting. I want you to know if you are going through something like that right now, if there's something going on in your life, if it's unconfessed, if it's unrepented, maybe you've got some secret thing going on and it's affecting you physically, It can make you physically sick. It's more than just an emotional thing. David is is 
alluding to the fact that it made him physically sick. He was aching, he was fatigued, he felt drained all the time. Sleep was a stranger to him. He's absolutely miserable. And finally, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Nathan, says, David, you, you're, you have sinned. And, and David finally breaks down and he says, God, I confess to you that I am a sinner. And then we read in Psalm 51, which is kind of the partner psalm to Psalm 32, David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. He said, I can confess that against you and you only, I have sinned. And then in this confession, God's forgiveness is poured out on him. And he received this cleansing and he writes about it in verse 51. And that's what he will do for you. If you are living in life and there's some things going on in your life and you just know you need to clean some things up, confess them and repent of them, understand that God's grace and his blood will cover your sin. You don't have to carry it anymore. Romans chapter 4. David accepted God's forgiveness even when he still felt guilty. And I think there's some of us that need to hear that today. You need to understand that as we talked about last week in Romans 3, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And when you come to a place in your life that you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus, you confess that you're a sinner, you confess Jesus is the Christ, you're baptized into Him, the Bible says that God forgives your sin And He fills you with His Holy Spirit. And you become a new person. He cleanses you of your iniquities. Your transgressions are gone. Your unrighteousness now becomes righteousness. And He cleanses you. But there are still some of you, when you read the Bible, you say, hey, you know what? David did that. But then we see there were a lot of things in his life that still went wrong. Well, yeah. You know, that that, that happened. David even still felt guilty. He still felt kind of dirty even though he knew that God had forgiven him. He's still praying in Psalm 51, God, would you please cleanse me? And it's very important here to understand that when Nathan, when he pointed his finger at David, he said, you're the man who's done this terrible thing. You're guilty. David said, I I confess that I'm guilty. And the moment that he confessed, here's what? Nathan said to David, David said, the Lord will not hold this against you. Again, we read and we see that some terrible things happened to David after this sin, right? Four of his children died. You think, man, so so God forgave him, but then this still happened. Here's what you need to understand. Um... God forgives us of our sin, but sometimes some of our sin has some consequences that create collateral damage. Right? And those things play out. That doesn't mean that God has not forgiven you. That just means there's consequences to poor choices. And and you need to be um, you need to be in His Word and you need to exercise wisdom in the choices that you make. Um, The consequences of sin are terrible. So, I encourage you to confess that sin and allow God to forgive you, but 
just like Jesus in the New Testament several times, you need to leave that life of sin and then just pray that God gives you the strength to get through whatever consequences in this life might happen. But He has forgiven you and you are clean when you confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. So we have two examples of faith in the Old Testament. Abraham who followed God's plan even though he didn't know the details. David who confessed God's forgiveness even though he still felt guilty after he did that. But I want to share with you some enemies of faith. Okay, Look at verses 9 through 16. And understand that um, every time we use, every time Paul uses the word circumcision in this passage of Scripture, we can substitute that with other things in our lives that we think if we just do that, we're going to be okay. Like there's some things we think if I just do enough good things, I'll, I'll be okay. If I just get baptized, it doesn't matter how I live my life after that, or even if I really have all that faith, if I just get in the baptistry, I'm okay. You know, I, I want you to. To think about those things that sometimes we do that we think if we just do that, we're going to be okay. Substitute that for the, the word circumcision. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Now that's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty important question to the Jews there. Was it the act of being circumcised that made him righteous? Or was it the faith that he had before that act that made him righteous? And here's the answer in verse 10. It was not after, meaning after he was circumcised, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision uh, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to him. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Anybody confused yet? Okay, just want to make sure. Okay, stay with me. Now, he walked by faith, and we are to follow in his footsteps of faith. It says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And that phrase keeps coming over and over again, righteousness through faith, righteousness that comes by faith. He continues, for if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Okay. Look at verse 14. If those who live by law are heirs. All of those words, all of those things that I was saying where your mind is just going, what and how many times can he use the word circumcised in that one passage of Scripture? Here's what it all boils down to. If there's anything that we can do to earn righteousness, then faith has no value. That's basically what he's saying. If there's anything that we can do to save ourselves, what's the use in having faith? The Bible talks about the kind of faith that is empty, that is dead, that is false. In fact, James talks about a dead faith in his, in his uh, book. And, and uh, he talks about the difference between that and a living faith. 
And so it's important for us to understand that if we're not careful, we can fall prey to some of the enemies of faith and not have a genuine faith, right? Here's the first one. Failure. Failure is the number one enemy to faith. It says, I'm too bad to change. Failure can be a huge enemy to our faith. If you've had a lot of mistakes in your life, if you've had a lot of failure in your life, this is what some of you might be saying. You might be saying, I'm too bad to change. There are some people in their lives, they just think, hey, you know what? I've done so many stupid things. There's no way God can forgive me. I am beyond change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. There's some people who believe that. Well, here's the good news for you. You're not a dog, and we're not talking about tricks. Right? We're talking about a God who loves you so much that He sent His one and only Son to die for you. And He says, listen, I just want you to believe that. I want you to come to Me, and I want you to surrender yourself to Me. And I want you to repent of your sins. I want you to be baptized. And I want you to rise to new life. If you think you can change yourself, there's a lot of people who think, you know what, I need to get myself cleaned up before I make that decision. If you could clean yourself up enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. And, and I'm here to tell you that it takes faith to believe, no matter how bad you are, how rotten you think you have been, the grace of God can still pick you up out of the depths of sin and change you and save you. I believe with all of my heart that there's not a single person, there's not a single sinner on the face of this earth that is so bad that God can't save them. And that Jesus can change them. That's the key. You can't you can't change yourself. You have, to let, you have to let Jesus do it. Now, I believe fear is the second enemy. Some people say, well, it's just too good to be true. There's no way. Some people have this fear of trusting Jesus. They say, it's too good to be true. The business of putting your faith in Jesus, turning from your sins, you know, maybe just praying this little prayer. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. It's just too easy. And I think there are some people who who kind of pride themselves, maybe some in this room, I don't know, of being thinkers. You like to process things. You like to really consider things. You like to mull them over mentally and make an educated decision on what you're going to do before you accept them. Sometimes people are absolutely afraid this Christian life business is just too good to be true. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. Jesus said to a bunch of adults a bunch of religious people, unless you change your ways, unless you adults become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Intellectual adult, let me tell you this. You make a tremendous mistake if you think you have to figure all of this out before you can trust Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, it's just the other way around. You know, I think we make the mistake in the church and we look at children and we think, all right, children, you need to start acting like adults before we can baptize you, before you can give your life to Christ. Jesus said, no, you got it backwards. You adults, you've got to become like them if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
We have to become like children. It's simple, childlike faith. We don't have to have all the answers. We either trust Him or we don't. And then number three, I think one that people deal with, an enemy of faith, is feelings. Some people are trusting in their feelings. They say, well, I just don't feel right. I used to say that to my dad. I'll say, Dad, something just don't feel right, or I don't feel good. You know what he'd say? Feel again. That's what he would say. I'm like, okay, thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. It just don't feel right. Well, i got to be honest. I, I get a little upset. There seems to be a movement among Christianity where Christians today bounce around from church to church to church just to try to experience some new kind of feeling. You know, maybe, maybe they like to go to this particular church because they laugh a lot. Or maybe they like to go to this church because when they sing or, or, or clap or whatever they do, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Maybe it's just, I want to feel uplifted when I leave there. I don't like all that, that uh, sin and condemnation and talk about hell. or anything. There's a lot of people who are going around searching for a feeling. And that's terribly dangerous because you don't live the Christian life by your feelings. Or at least you shouldn't. Aren't you glad that you're not saved by your feelings? Because there's a lot of days I would wake up where I don't feel all that saved if I'm just going by my feelings. You know what I'm talking about? I am not a morning person. I'm just telling you right now, I would not even start to feel saved till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Right? If it was based on my feelings. You look in the mirror, you don't look like it. You, know, you don't feel like it. I am so glad that the Christian life is not lived by our feelings. It's lived by the facts of the Word of God. And that feeds our engine. And feelings are kind of like the caboose. It's okay to have some feelings uh, eventually that come along. You know, I think God gave us feelings for a reason. But if that is leading your walk with the Lord, if your feelings are leading your walk, you're going you're gonna to have some, some hurt feelings, number one. And you're going to have some downfalls. Right? Those are the enemies of faith. But what's the essence as we begin to wrap up today? Look at verse 17. I think it's one of the greatest verses um, in the Bible on faith. Um, and would you agree with me before we read it that if anybody in this world knows anything about faith, it's God. Amen? Okay, very good. The character and nature of God is intertwined with the essence of faith. Look at verse 17. As it is written, and he's talking about Abraham here, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in him who he believed. And so there's that word again, faith, believe, trust. And here's what you need to know about God. The God who gives life to the dead. And calls things that are not as though they were. Alright? That's how the Bible describes Him. He gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That's faith. When you call things that are not as if they were, that's what we're talking about. That's the essence of faith. Remember just a little bit ago I talked about feelings how you, and, and you have 
You, you have all these different senses that feed our feelings. You have taste and touch and hearing and sight and smell. And so if you're trying to use all of those senses and feelings to grasp and understand the Christian life, you're going to be frustrated your entire life because you can't see God, you can't smell God, you can't hear God, you can't taste God, you can't touch God. Well, faith is this sixth sense, so to speak. And it overrides and it supersedes any of our other five senses. Faith should be a part of your personality with everything else that's in your life, with your sight, with your smell, with your hearing, with your taste, and with your touch. Number six is your faith. When everything else is saying, no, 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 can't be that way, your faith is saying yes. Or vice versa, if everything else in this world is saying yes, 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 your faith is saying, no, God says I can't do that. It calls things that are not according to the five senses as if they are. And so here's something that you need to understand about the essence of faith. It's not faith itself. It's the object of your faith that really matters. Look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is another great verse on faith in the Bible. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for or certain of what we do not see. And the key words there are sure and certain. Right? We are sure of something that we hope for. We're certain of something that we don't see. So faith is not faith in itself. It's the object of your faith that's really important. right? You exercise faith every single day in some form or fashion. Every time you get into an automobile, you put your key in the ignition, you turn the key, and you expect something to happen, right? You expect the car to start. Most of the time, it does. right? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes your faith is... Is, is misplaced. You're putting faith in something that really doesn't matter. Every time you drive across a bridge, you're putting your faith, you're putting your trust in the security of that, that bridge. Every time you write a letter and you put a stamp on it, you're putting your faith in Mike Imley to deliver it for you. And he gets it there, right? Most of the time. But sometimes, even the postal service lets us down. You know? It's not faith itself, it's the object of our faith that really matters. So here's the key. Right? The word faith, trust, and believe, it's the same word in the New Testament. It's used over 500 times. And here's what it means. It's to believe that God is worthy. That He is reliable that He will never fail you and that He will do everything that He says He will do. you got to trust that. That's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And the last thing is this, as our worship team comes. A little faith is a powerful force. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, have faith as much as a mustard seed, and you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And some of you are thinking, well, I need a little more faith. You know what? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, because the Bible says a little faith is a powerful thing. Faith as a mustard seed is a powerful, powerful thing. You say, well, how in the world can a mustard seed, the faith of a mustard seed, move a mountain? Well, you need to understand that within a mustard seed, there's life, there's growth, 
Right? And so there, what God is trying to say to us is that this mustard seed has within it this life, this divine life, and a mountain is this dead, inorganic rock. And Jesus is saying, just having a little bit of tiny faith is powerful. It's powerful. It's more powerful than any immovable object on earth because it has life. Faith can get stronger by exercising it. That's the last thing. I thought I was done, but I had one last thing. Sorry, guys. Faith's like a muscle. You've heard that said before. Every one of us are born with a certain amount of muscles. About 330 or so, I understand. And let's say all of a sudden you want to get stronger. What do you do? You go back to the hospital and you say, Hey, you know what? Uh, Can you give me some more muscles? Or can you improve my muscle? Can you do some kind of surgery and make my muscles bigger, stronger? Can you give me more of them? No, you don't do that. You start exercising. You know, you start lifting weights in your garage or at the gym or whatever the case may be, and they become stronger. Faith is like a muscle. If you don't use it, it's going to atrophy. If you do use it, it's going to grow and become stronger. Look at what the Bible says in Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. So how do you increase your faith? How do you strengthen your faith? You need to get in the book. You need to get into the Bible. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Faith is coming to the end. You remember the scene? I'm going to ask you to stand with me. You remember the scene um, in one of the Indiana Jones movies? I think it's the Last Crusade. And he comes to the edge of the cliff and, and he's got to get from here to the other side and, and there's no bridge or anything there. And he's like, what do I do? And, and he comes to the edge and he steps out on that and then the bridge appears. I think that's kind of what God wants of us sometimes to believe without even seeing that, that there's anything there. That's putting our faith in Him. And there might be some of you who are there right now. There are some of you who have been mulling around and say, you know what? I don't know if I'm buying into this whole Jesus thing or not. You don't have to know all the answers. Just trust Him. Have that childlike faith. Maybe some of you have kind of been living your life by feelings instead of faith. I encourage you to repent of that and and start to trust God in a way that you never have before. Maybe some of you want to make a decision today to come forward. If If you're here and you want to come forward, that's awesome. Maybe you want to text to our church connection number the word ready. If you're watching online, text us that word ready if you want to know Jesus today.